listening to Garbage Show, one of the first podcast network. Please radio. If you are a regular listener to the show, you might notice this sounds a lot better than what you're used to, and there's a good reason for that. Um, usually, the show is done kind of on the fly. I take a portable recorder to people's houses, people's jam spaces, back seats of their cars, rooftops, patios, pretty much wherever. And for this one, we're actually in a recording studio, which is very exciting for me because, despite doing a podcast for almost eight years now. This is a rarity. <laughs> so it's unusual, yeah. It's very unusual. So if you were at the uh, Manitoba Podcast Festival, and if you weren't, you should be ashamed of yourself, um, <laughs> we had uh, a number of, um, basically we got all the podcasters that we knew of in Winnipeg together to sort of talk shop, uh, you know, talk about what they do, share ideas, share suggestions on equipment, on recording techniques. And one of the panels we had was about recording things in, I guess, a formal way, maybe is a, is a good way to put it. And the two guests on this show today were part of that panel. So I'm here at Precursor Productions, and I'm talking to two people who I probably will get to introduce themselves. And then you can explain what you do at the studio here. Yeah, so my name is Andrew Yankuski. I own Precursor Productions. I've been doing this for 19 years, which is both scary and exciting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, I'm a, an audio engineer, studio owner, and I pretty much dabble in every aspect of audio. Though these days, because I run the studio, I'm moving more towards project management and more just audio engineering okay. on the mixing side of things. Hey, uh, my, my name is Paul Blanford. <clears throat> uh, I'm here. I've been with Precursor for about just about over a year now. Um, I've been helping a lot with a little bit of dialogue editing, some 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 voiceover recording and, and and a little bit of things like that. But I've also been um, mostly helping out with a bit of business development, branding, and and marketing for the studio as well, trying to sort of in, increase their online presence and get as many new clients as possible. Cool. Well, and just to go back to the the podcast festival for a second, because mm-hmm. that's kind of the main interaction I've had with you guys. Really, was at that festival and you know a little bit of organization before, mm-hmm. but. The response that I got from the segment that you did was super positive from all the podcasters. And I think that maybe what that's about is that there's so many different ways people are doing this and using different software, using different equipment. And I think a lot of people have never been introduced to kind of the typical studio way of doing things. I mean, all of this equipment here, I think for a lot of podcasters, they wouldn't even imagine mm. needing it right? or, or have any idea how to use it. So I yeah. think that was a, a cool part of the festival just in the sense that it kind of opened a lot of eyes, I think, myself included, on just what's out there and what you can do given the right equipment and the right uh, training and, and technology. Yeah, well, we also didn't know really what to expect, so it was kind of a pleasant surprise sort of situation for us, never having been to the festival, but when I know we kind of did a little preliminary talk yeah, and uh, we talked about a number of things, but as soon as you mentioned that podcast festival, I think Paul and I both lit up and were like, hey, yeah, yeah. that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. First of all, I had no idea what was going yeah. on here, so I guess I should be ashamed for that. <laughs> yeah. Even more yeah. than not attending, yeah. I wasn't even aware of it. No, it's okay. It's um, a, that was yeah. a 
only the first year. That was, this was number two. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. But as a lover of podcasts, I mean, podcasts have become kind of a big thing in the last two, three years. All of a sudden, after years of existing, us being aware of, they've suddenly become this like mainstream form of media. So I think a lot of people are aware. They're listening to their favorite podcasts. I certainly count myself among them. Mm-hmm. Myself among them. And then uh, we do a bit of recording here and there for professional ones, more or corporate things here and there. It's not as much sort of the indie podcast. It was really neat to come into the park theater and to see all these people set up and live casting right from the theater. Didn't yeah. expect that. Don't ask me why. Yeah. I didn't expect that. And so we got to see a bit of their rigs as well, too, yeah. which is something I didn't expect as well. And I there's figured, a huge variety, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. That yeah. was immediately apparent. Table that was kind to of table. Exciting. Some people are, are very into the gear. Some people, like me, just have a portable recorder they rely on for everything. And it's, yeah, it's very diverse. Yeah, yeah, right off the bat, you saw a whole bunch more gear than I, than I anticipated to see, which was, you know, as, as someone who loves audio, always eager to see. My eyes light up as soon as I see little faders going up and down and some, some lights blinking. Yeah, and, and once again, not really knowing what to expect, it did actually give us a little heads up before we went into our panel as to what people might already be using out there. Sure. And some of it might have exceeded the basic expectations we have. Uh, others, like you said, it went from minimal setups to things where there were mixers attached and that. So it was cool. It was cool to see it. Also, I wasn't sure if we'd be on a panel on our own or if we'd be with other folks. So the fact that you were kind enough to give us a panel of our own and ask those direct questions and that was a pleasant surprise. I wasn't yeah. sure how much kind of mic time we would get. And, and we got a lot of opportunity to talk to people. The questions from the audience were great, and I know you let us go over time a bit too, which was exciting as well. Well, I think part of the reason I wanted to do this actual episode with you guys too is that I think that there was definitely a desire for people to hear more from you. Uh, just and people had more questions that I don't think got answered. I'm sure you had lots of people coming up to you afterwards with questions, and not to dwell too much on the podcast element of things because you know this is a music podcast. I'm definitely interested in what you do as far as the music end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like there, I think there was a definitely interest, and and that kind of open our eyes to do maybe more ideas down the road of what we can do with the festival and with associated events because, you know, this didn't occur to us the first year. <laughs> to, well, yeah, to, I mean, to get any kind of experts on, on, on gear, basically, and on sound. and on, We were mostly focused on interviewing techniques and things like that, but there's that whole other side of things, the technical side, which, I mean, I personally don't know very much about. I've just kind of MacGyvered it together with whatever yeah. equipment I had, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was it was very cool. So thanks again for for coming out to that. But uh, yeah, we I mean and yeah, and you're welcome. But definitely the thing about any kind of a DIY community is everybody always starts just using whatever they have at hand. And sure. I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Uh, even when it comes to music production here because we teach audio production as well too, I always say the greatest predictor of success for people is that you're already doing it. Yeah. And yeah. people are so self-conscious like, "Well, I don't want to show you what I'm working on or I'm just using crappy gear." It's like I'm like I'm not really interested in that. I mean, Anybody can buy expensive gear, but if you're actually creating something with it, even if you're doing it on a very basic level, that's the predictor of success. And sure. here you see a whole community of people that are just diving in and at different skill levels, and they're just getting it done. And yeah. that's what's actually more exciting yeah. to me and, than what they're using. And the one reality that still really blows my mind about audio is is most of those podcasters had realistically a better recording setup than most studios did 30 years ago. Like the the technology they have is still extremely powerful for for a DIY setup now so there's almost no reason to be you know a little a little bit scared of of what you're creating cuz it's you have so much power at your hands to make amazing audio even if you don't really know what you're doing you can still you can still come away with a fairly pleasing product and 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 be able to get something that you're happy with yeah, that, that's part of our philosophy, too. We're kind of gear minimalists. I mean, definitely people on the music side of things, and maybe you've encountered this before. I'm not sure if, it, if it's the kind of thing that comes up in your podcast when you're talking to musicians, but people can get obsessed and fetishized. Sure, gear. they can, yeah. It can be guitars. Yep. It can be uh, software synthesizers. It can be hardware synthesizers. It can be you name it. There's almost any type yep. of equipment exactly. someone will fetishize. People who are just absolutely obsessed with tube amps or something, right? And they, yep, yeah. 
So, I mean, and you know, once again, like we all love our gear. I'm not going to say that when I get a new toy for the studio that allows me to do something I couldn't do before or allows me to do something better. I'm not going to say that's not a little fun. It's not a little sure, exciting. Sure, But it's always more about what can I do with this tool. When you start focusing on the collecting of the devices themselves, that's when it becomes problematic. <laughs> when you start and hoarding, right? Yeah. yeah, there is like, and it's a hoarding impulse. And yeah. I even, I've been fortunate enough to have some people who have given talks at seminars that I've, like workshops I put on and things like that, where we've had some people who have recognized at some point, they're good musicians and they're getting things done, but they realize at some point they start started to veer towards collecting, yeah. and then they actually caught themselves, it's, and then just yeah, just, just it, changed their it's course. It's funny, just in in the in the past six months or so, I've I've had a very similar reaction, my or realization, I should say myself. I definitely have been sort of when I when I used to work full time, I had a bunch of money, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll keep buying new gear, I'll keep buying new things, and and what I realized was I kept buying more things faster than I could actually learn how to harness all these new new instruments into my setup. So I kind of. I got I got lost for a little while where I couldn't make music as effectively or, or as well as I once did because there was a whole bunch of new toys that I would just kind of get lost at and it was it was a really realizing moment to sort of just step back and be like okay yeah really this computer is essentially all I really need everything else is just icing on the cake that can have value but it can also take away from from the core element of what you really are trying to accomplish well that's maybe why I'm so interested and curious I guess about the type of things that, that that you guys are doing here in a studio setting because I was the opposite when I played in bands of the gear hoarders. I would play a guitar as long as it vaguely stayed in tune and didn't fall apart in my hands, <laughs> I'd be fine with it. I know people who, you know, I'd play with people who had all this fancy gear, they were very meticulous. As long as I could throw the thing around a bit and it wouldn't break and it, you know, had a couple strings on it at <laughs> yeah. least, I was fine. So I didn't know the brand names or any of my gear. I couldn't tell you any stats about them, any kind of specifics. And I'm still a little bit like that. Um, I think if I did play in bands now, I would be very happy just hitting play on a tape deck, recording it, and then sending it out there as a release, which I know is not necessarily the best way to approach it. But I guess in we're living in an era now where bands can do the digital equivalent of that, mm-hmm. where they can record on a laptop and they can put it on Bandcamp, and I think a lot of artists, especially starting out, they don't see something like this as something that's kind of accessible to them. Yeah, that, that has been a, well, I mean, traditionally when you think about it, it was, the whole thing was designed not to be accessible, right? right? right. So if we go back 40 years um, into the previous kind of major label gatekeeper world, which, I mean, it, it exists in a different way now, but essentially, you were going into demo studios, and, it, and maybe you could create something in a home studio, but it was very difficult to create anything that was even, like, demo quality. Sure. So, there were these local demo studios, which is what our studio would have been in those days, and so you saved up a bit of money, or got a grant, or whatever it was, to get into one of those studios, put together a song or two or three, and then the hope was you could get someone to back you up, someone in a major label, or big indie, or something yeah. like that, so then you could then re-record those songs again. Do it properly. Yeah, yeah. do it properly kind of thing, and most people are aware of that sort of thing, but of course that's changed now, and that changed in the time that we created the studio. When we created the studio in the year 2000, in Winnipeg, a lot of people were very still focused on that mindset and very sure. afraid of the digital tools and the upcoming digital distribution. And so it was in that environment of fear that we were like, hey, we're here, we're a digital studio, yeah. things are, can be better, they can be, they can be cheaper, they can be more efficient, and that message wasn't very well received at that time. But of course, what eventually happened is that younger generations of people just started using the tools that they had, and those tools became became phones, tablets, sure. laptops became ubiqu- ubiquitous in that. So now I think we're in an era where I see part of digital literacy. I don't want to sound too high-handed here, but 
part of digital literacy for musicians is at least knowing how to make a rudimentary recording of yourself. A little basic recording, a little basic editing, maybe just the most basic mixing. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you have to become us. You may not be as interested in the technical audio engineering side as we are, but you should know the vernacular. You should have at least enough literacy to be able to go into a studio at some point and communicate with engineers or ideally do as much of it yourself as you can. Sure. And we're certainly seeing more people do a certain portion of recording a song or an EP or an album on their own, and that doesn't have to be scrapped anymore. We can totally utilize that and then just actually enhance it for them or help them with well, that's that. That's cool, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Paul, if you have anything to comment on that in your experience in that too, but that's what I've seen really change is that it used to be like, well, I've done this stuff, but it's just demo quality, and so let's start from the ground up yeah, again. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's, we're opposite of that. that plot. We're like, let's keep what you've got if we can. And then know? build on it. And, and build it, yeah. on that, because that's what yeah. you made. It came out of you. It's the most, it's, it's got the vibe that, that came from your excitement in yeah, that right. moment. Because oftentimes that moment is what's going to encapsulate the strongest recording. You know, like when you're sitting in your room, there, there. It has that specific emotion when you're playing your guitar. You know, if it's recorded directly in your your preamp or whatever, or it doesn't really matter. You have that, you have that emotion that you're playing it, and it's it's just going to be it's going to be shown in that recording. And that's something that you don't really want to lose out because that's at the end of the day what really makes a good song is is emotion that's put into it. And, Absolutely. And, and if you can encapsulate that, mo that that emotion that you've recorded in your room in that in that time when you just sort of found that riff that was so so pleasing and you, and you just discovered it and you had that sense of awe and that sense of wonder that moment will will show out in the recording and that's definitely something that you don't want to lose and with any bit of software now and nowadays it's super easy to just track out some stems so even if you just do a basic demo with some simple midi drum drum kits to give yourself an idea of how the song will go we can still use that simple recording of the guitar and 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 like andrew says sort of beef it up a little bit or maybe it wouldn't even need any beefing up cuz it it it'll it just sounds decent already, but the reality is it'll give you something to work on, and and like I say, you can just add a simple MIDI drum track to to just give you something to work on, and at the end of the day, you'll you'll have a much more finished song because it, you know working with a drum, work, working with all those other little elements, they they really add to the feeling and and the moment when you're actually creating. So it it kind of not only does it allow you to get a better product at the end end of the day, it allows you to sort of enjoy that moment of creation a little bit more, which is... Well, knowing that it might persist, it, it does kind of take me back a bit to, well, you know, there's uh, anybody who's sort of demoitis, that whole phenomenon. So in the old days, because you were working in a demo studio or your own home studio, sure. and you weren't intending that to be a finished product, and it couldn't really be in those days, like, you know, if you got it signed, the idea was it would be made into a better product, whether you liked it or not. But the vibe of that moment was often something that when they took it through the the sort of more clinical steps of the studio, it would lose that vibe. It would and get so, more sterilized sounding, right? And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, so then yeah. everybody would agree at the end of the day there was something in the demo that's missing from the expensive paid-for recording. And so it's what they call chasing the demo or demoitis. Yeah. So you're always trying to recreate that. You've got this great sounding thing, but it, it no longer matches the vibe. Well, the beauty of this era, probably, people probably dreamed in that time, well, imagine if we could have created this in such a way that we could preserve that vocal or that guitar or that keyboard or or whatever it is, that yeah. element that has the vibe. But then we could we could fix all the things that were kind of terrible. Well, that exists now. Right. But it does just require it does put the onus on the artist to at least be literate enough with the tools that they can they can make a decent capture. And that's still, I think, where there's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and that and that sort of falls into my last point. Like realistically, if if you can make a decent recording, you'll be able to use anything. And 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 if you so if you record something that you really love in your room and the recording's half decent. That will be usable, com yeah. completely usable, and that's 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 a it's a really valuable thing to know because a, a lot of the times I think 
you know, I've seen a lot of my friends, they'll, they'll look at their demos and they think the whole thing is just unusable and, and they'll just need to re-record everything professionally in a studio and spend a whole bunch of money to get their song sounding amazing. But when in reality, maybe all they need is just to, to hire one session musician and a session drummer to, to lay down some rhythm or, or, or maybe just hire one, you know, one bassist to give something. Or they really need just one little bit of extra thing to, to give it over the edge and they have all this, the elements there already. Most people don't realize that. But there is a caveat to that, and the caveat is that going into that process, there are a few fundamentals you need to know. And I think from the Podcast Festival, hopefully what came out of that, what I tried to give people, was some sort of starting information. Yeah. Some places to start from, because I think really where you most go wrong as an amateur, whether you're a podcaster or somebody making a musical recording, is just not knowing some basic principles, right? So, for example, like uh, examples that I can think of that, that I've seen a lot of times, people record in the bathroom or something like that because there's a little bit of an echo. Like, not that, yeah. not that the echo of the bathroom doesn't sound good when you're singing in the shower, but it's really kind of a boxy echo for the most part in an average home that wouldn't really flatter a vocal. Like, so doing that sort of a thing, you'd be much better off recording in a drier environment, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whether it's your bedroom or a living room or well, something Well, I used to like record that. my podcast intros in my basement laundry room closet. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was just, for some, for whatever reason, that was the best. Uh, you the know. driest environment that yeah, you had, probably, yeah. that was easy to get to, right? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. just yeah, just knowing what to listen for, because it all comes back to your ear. And so I think that's where people sometimes have the challenge. It's, it's even much less about the gear. It's more about just like, what is it you're after? What's your, what's your outcome? Yeah. And can you hear that outcome? Like, is your ear trained enough to know? Because I think a lot of times people don't know what they don't know, right? At sure. the beginning of a process. Sure. It sounds trite to say that, but no, that's no, the biggest mean, yeah. barrier, right? Well, not to get, I don't want to get too much into the technical weeds here, but has, you know, over the course of having this studio and of your involvement in recording and audio, have things changed in the sense that the way people consume music now is so different and people are listening probably just on a phone speaker or something versus, you know, putting on an actual record and an actual stereo system. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you still want it to sound good, whatever format they're going to listen in, but is that has that become kind of part of the... It's, it's interesting because it's, it's kind of different and it's kind of the same. Okay. So if you go back to, say, the 1960s before I was born, yeah, yeah. Um, the common, like, say, when the Beatles were releasing their albums, which is a common reference point for yeah. a lot of people, the, the Beatles masters were done in mono. They were mono, yeah. Because yeah. the predominant way people appreciated music on the radio at that time is the radio was the dominant mass sure, media yeah. platform Until for music. very recently, yeah. It was through mono radios, right? The exciting thing in those days was the transistor radio where you could actually have a battery-operated radio that you could carry with, with you, you yeah, right? Yeah, that sure, was the sure. big, so that was like the iPhone of its time <laughs> in terms of portable music. And so that was the format that was kind of like the default format. And so um, we call those types of speakers, like the, the portable radio speaker or whatever, a grot box, right? Okay. It's just kind of a, a, a lowest common denominator consumer speaker that you would um, reference to. And so in studios, it was always important to test in a car stereo, on a radio, on a grot box kind of thing. In the 60s and 70s, definitely that kind of a radio speaker would have been the default grot box standard. Okay. Okay. Now, phone, I think, is the new grot box, right? Yeah. In a way, somebody showing a YouTube video or playing something off Bandcamp or whatever it is on their phone, right. that's become the new thing. Now, they started off as extremely small, tinny speakers, but now with larger phones, better technology, yeah, yeah. it's actually kind of like a radio, basically. Okay. So the weird thing is, is the more things change, the more they stay the same in that sense, because that's come up a lot. Um, now, there was another part to your question as well, too, which is, is sort of, uh, I've lost it now, but let's, okay. let's go back to it a bit. So you talked about <laughs> I'm process. I'm trying to think what my other part was now. Yeah, because there was an arc to, there's an arc to that whole process. Well, well I, actually, we were talking about putting on a record or something like that. That's the other arc that's happened. If I can just jump sure, into yeah, that for ahead, a second, yeah, then yeah. I'll let you just jump yeah, in when you, got, yeah. when you can pick up off of that. So the other thing that I've seen is, is that, you know, when we started this studio, we were very involved in sort of the DJ producer community and underground electronic dance music. Okay. And that was the last community, along with hip hop to some extent, that was keeping vinyl pressing alive. Sure. There were almost no pressing plants anywhere because we were 
were working with artists who were pressing records at that time. Yeah. And Everything had just switched to CD. It, it was, was completely yeah. CD and it was yeah. or completely digital. I mean, streaming wasn't quite there yet, but I mean, we could see that some other format, like the majors in the early 2000s, we started our studio, they were going for DVD audio and SACD, which right. probably almost none of your listeners will remember. I remember SACD. <laughs> yeah. remember I, I never had them, but... You're one of the yeah. few that yeah. remembers, yeah. yeah. I remember seeing them, man. Yeah, like, yeah, what is so, this? I, I remember the logo they had for it. Yeah, yeah that, so that's yeah. that's Sony Super Audio CD. Yeah. And the, 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 they thought everything was going to high-res audio, right? They wanted to sell people their record collections in yet another format, sure. another digital format. As of they course, always yeah. try to do, right? Yeah. yeah, and of course, we all know that like Steve Jobs and, and Apple and iTunes was the way things went. People wanted convenience, they wanted portability. People are still griping and bitching and moaning about the audio quality. And there's no question that in the early days, MP3 audio quality was, was, it was poor. terrible, yeah. But uh, there's no real excuse for it now. A high-quality MP3 is actually pretty okay for a consumer listening format. And some of the other formats, like what Spotify streams in, which is Og Vorbis, and uh, you know, uh, the M4A AAC format, which Apple streams okay. in, are actually quite good. Like for most people, that's probably the best listening experience that a consumer has ever had. Sure. Certainly better than cassettes. And although people love to talk about vinyl, it's actually a fairly touchy and complicated thing to get a vinyl playback that rivals a good digital playback. Okay. It can be done, but it's not something that you're going to do off of a hundred dollar, you know, London drugs, right. uh, you know, purchased, you know, record player of any type. But you need a high-end stereo to get that, yeah. Well, yeah. and there's more calibration and stuff. That's the thing I think people don't realize is there's a little more to it in terms of setup. It's a, it's a fiddly setup. So I'm a very torn person. I come from an era where vinyl was standard when I grew sure. up, and I grew up with it, and I still have the romantic attachment to the packaging, the vinyl, pouring over record covers, yep. the, the sound and feel of it. And I would be lying if I said I totally disliked it or something like that, but I do think it's become the new fetishization. Like, you know, just to follow this arc in a yeah, different way, people sure, are sure. fetishizing vinyl in the way that others fetishize gear. Yeah. So that that's a thing that's kind of an interesting arc that we've happened. We've gone from almost no vinyl on the planet to people actually like overindulging it. Yeah, oh, for, absolutely. I've taken this in a different direction, no, 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 but it just, it's, it's, it's just when you talked about consumer audio, that's what I thought that's of. That's interesting because yeah. I've definitely seen that too. I mean, I, I've listened to records for decades now, mm -hmm. and I still have a pretty big vinyl collection, but it's just mainly because, well... I have I've still never switched over to the digital Spotify Apple Music any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Everything I have is physical, and that's just mainly because I already have it all. <laughs> I just don't want to. <laughs> I spent all these all these years building up this collection of tapes and CDs and records. I just have no desire to to switch because it's it's there already. I it's spend work. the money and it the time. On, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I've definitely seen that with vinyl, where people who you know maybe never listened to records in the first place are now seeing it, and they really want to get involved because they like the subculture of it and stuff. Yeah, the one thing I, fi I find quite interesting about the resurgence of vinyl is. The fact that it's drawing a lot more people to going back and, and, and actually listening to LPs and EPs, whereas... In full, like start, start exactly, to finish. Yeah, yeah whereas yeah. in the past sort of decade or so, that, that, that whole ideology has sort of disappeared a little bit. Most people have really been trying to release singles because in, in the digital platform, no one really even listens to. Like if you go on Spotify and you listen to most artists or you look at most artists' albums... There's a severe decline from the amount of plays that the first song gets to the last song of the, of their album gets, and it's it's statistical throughout every artist. You know, basically everyone, the last song of an album will have a lot less plays than the first song sure. of an album, just because listeners nowadays they're not so inclined to to want to want to listen to the full album. And maybe it's because with with uh, with vinyl, you actually had to go and take off the album and 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 put on a new one or whatever. Like maybe it is just that effort that it. That, that that's drawing people away from listening to the album, but whatever the reason is, with the with the evolution of digital music, everyone's most artists have sort of gone the way of of releasing singles almost sure. entirely. Well, I think that I mean this isn't where that started, but I started noticing that happened before the before the you know streaming thing uh, came about with hip hop because you'd get you know 
a lot of my favorite rap albums from the 90s and most of my rap collections from the 90s, mm-hmm. but you have albums that are produced start to finish by the same producer or team of producers. And then you start getting into the 2000s, you get an album that has 25 songs. Each song is produced by a different guy. There's or a no, team of people. Or a team of people. Like, there's 10 names. Right. I, I sometimes wonder how can that many people write one song? And there's no cohesion <laughs> from track to track. Each, each song yeah. sounds completely different and yeah. you'd have no way of knowing it was from the same album. But if you go... Five ten years earlier, you can tell it's there's a there's a tonal similarity to the songs, and there's yeah, it just it, it's part of a, a thing versus just song 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 song. It's interesting. I mean, when, you know, to come back to both your points here, the the thing that I see, see, I'm what I think is is when it comes to appreciating an album in a long form format, I do agree that attention spans have gotten a lot shorter, and as a result. Um, people are focusing much more on not even songs, but just portions of songs, right? Skipping through music. Totally. I've seen how a lot of younger people are consuming music, and I don't want to knock younger people, but oh, when I've had time. occasion to see them in their natural environment, I feel kind of sad for them because they don't know the pleasure of focusing, right? Sure. Um, of just sitting there and listening by yourself or in a group from start to finish to a, an amazing record. Because yeah. that is a truly sublime experience that is different from just enjoying one song or part of a song. So I'm not suggesting they're not all that valid forms of enjoyment, but I think those of us who have had the pleasure of listening to a lot of long-form albums where they're more meaningful, like the song in context takes on a very different meaning than it does in isolation. It's it's funny, there's select artists that I have that I don't really know a lot of their specific songs per se, but I I know a lot of their albums, and when you listen to their album, you sort of just get lost for about 50 minutes, and I still haven't gone through to actually sit and figure out which songs I like out of those albums, but, you know, when I hear those songs... I know what they are, and I know where they come from, and they bring me back to that that moment when I was listening to that album, and it it really is a wonderful feeling. And it's it's kind of funny as someone who j- does love to listen to albums all the way through, you know that that little that those those people that are constantly just changing the song. It's kind of it's it's I I never feel settled when I'm listening to music that way because it's a I just never feel like we've gotten to the point where. Yeah, okay, now we, this is what we want to listen to, and we, we sort of settle on an enjo- enjoying song. It's always a process of finding something new, and it, it doesn't really seem like you ever, not that there's a goal in listening to music, but it, do, it doesn't really ever feel relaxed or settled. It always feels like you're chasing something, which isn't really the experience that I, I particularly want while listening to music. Yeah, I know that it's a, it's a very interesting um point and discussion, this whole idea of attention span. Yeah. But I see it not as an issue. See, I think a lot of people are seeing this as an issue of format. So they'll say, oh, well, MP3s, they sound terrible. And the MP3s are kind of like, almost like a euphemism for all things digital now. Sure. Because sure. most of it's not even MP3 anymore. and it, It's a superior if compressed format or, or sometimes a lossless format. But they'll say MP3s sound terrible and they promote skipping from song to song. So they just tend to blame it on the format. I've done but it. it. But it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it's about self-discipline, right? Like, sure. It's about, I think, I mean, I think those of us who came from older formats maybe developed a way of listening and looking and searching for music and appreciating it associated with those formats. And maybe it was because the effort of changing around record were all fundamentally lazy so you just yeah, left yeah, it on even yeah. if you hated it well sometimes. and i mean I, I grew up in the tape era right yeah. i mean like when i first started listening to music was the 80s mm-hmm. i was listening to tapes as a kid and um you know fast forwarding to find another song is a pain in the ass so you listen to the whole thing because you don't want to you know you, you, you can't just hit the next hit skip to the even on a record is easier because you can actually see the grooves but on a tape you just fast forward oh, i'm not there yet you know yeah, it's <laughs> so, true you're kind of in space you're in limbo yeah, right yeah. not knowing where it so is So i think the people who grew up on cds and beyond they're so used to just that instant 
you can switch to the next song instantly without any difficulty whatsoever. So it facilitates that. Yeah. There's no question the format yeah. facilitates that. But I think then, I guess my feeling, and I get overly philosophical here, but I'll, I'll just do that because that's <laughs> what I do. But the idea then is just to kind of like look at your listening. And if you're not happy with it or if you suspect that there's a way of listening that, you know, that, that could be better, yeah. then to just think about how you structure your listening. So, you know, for, for myself, I use streaming services to listen in the car, to casually listen, sure. to discover new artists and that. But then I'll purchase music of all my favorite artists and that and put them into my proper library. So I do it in a bit of a weird way. I kind of run my Apple Music library, not for streaming, but just for the stuff that I purchased. I'll load it in okay. there. I'll organize it. I'll create my playlists there. Spotify is my searching and casual listening tool. And so I'm actually using two different tools, which are almost identical, yeah. but for different purposes. And that keeps my libraries somewhat separated and it gives me kind of a, a way of searching out music and listening to it casually while at the same time buying the lossless versions, listening to them in the studio environment, you know, in the dark like a weirdo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As my fiance often says, she comes home and I'm sitting there with <laughs> my glowing LED cubes in the dark listening to music. She's like, you're such a weirdo. I'm like, no, this is normal yeah, to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is healthy to yeah. me. Well, no, I can definitely relate because I, uh, I don't listen to any music on my phone. It's all podcasts on my phone. And then all my music is listened to physically. So at home on my stereo that's been set up and I've tweaked it how I want it and everything mm -hmm. with my limited knowledge of gear. But mm. it's... It works for how I want it. And that's so, yeah, uh, all my listening is done sitting on a couch, listening usually at a high volume, <laughs> you know, versus listening to a phone. And, and yeah, I think it's just a different experience. And, and it's not that listening in the car is invalid or no, something there's no, too, exactly. right? There's no bad way to but do it. But yeah. there's a deep listening component to what you're describing, which I think very few people take the time to explore. Now. Sure. And once again, so I see that. So coming back to it, you can do it with vinyl. You could even do it with cassettes, yeah. and you can definitely do it with any digital format, be it streaming or otherwise, because yeah. it's all about you learning how to appreciate the music. So, I mean, I don't know. That's probably where we come at the conclusion of this consumer yeah, part yeah, of the I discussion. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's really important because when you're creating music, I t when I talk to my students, I say, you're creating music, but how you approach to appreciating music is equally important because yeah. that's what's teaching you how to create music. That's your influence. Yeah, yeah, in addition yeah. to real life and other things. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, it right? comes down to the, the skill of critical thinking which, or critical listening, realistically, which is just listening to a song and dissecting the different elements for what it is and what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy and and why they work well together and why they might not work together work well together and you know it's kind of hard to critical think if you can't actually sit down and understand the entirety of the song cuz there's a lot of elements in 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 specific songs that are there for very, very, very small atmospheric reasons or very different things. And if you only listen to a 30-second snippet of the song, it's very hard to hear those ideas in a full context and actually appreciate what they do to the song. Yeah, well, and, and I think in audio production, too, this concept of critical listening, maybe to just listeners who aren't involved in audio production, uh, will be a little bit foreign. It may, may not be meaningful to them. But for us, we use the term pretty specifically, but I think it can apply to the consumer listening experience if you have knowledge. So most of us, when we start listening to music, just know, I like this song, I don't like this song. Sure. I like this genre, I don't like this genre. It's a gut-level thing. That's probably the most valid part of music listening, just yeah. that emotional thing. Um, there's nothing yeah, if it makes worse you, if it, than... If it connects, if you can connect to it, you it's, respond. It's, it's good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to respond to it on some level. And, and although sometimes I will listen to music for more technical reasons, to me, the, the, you know, the most brilliant thing is when you can have a very technically interesting piece of music that also somehow can pull anybody in on a gut level. To totally. me, that's when somebody's really succeeded. That's what I'm particularly interested in. But for us, we talk about critical listening, and it's about... Once we learn a little bit more about audio engineering and how a song is put together, you can listen to layers of a piece of music. And so it gets a bit unusual in that you could listen to a genre that you don't particularly like. So for myself, modern country, not something that I particularly sure. enjoy on a gut level, but I can listen to a, a well-produced piece of music in a modern country genre, and I can actually enjoy the arrangement of the song. 
I could enjoy some of the music theory aspects of how sure. they're making their chord progressions, what key it's in, do they modulate or not. I can listen to uh, some of the audio engineering that was done in the mix. You know, what kind of reverbs are they using? Are there effects on things? Yeah. Is there a clever little thing they've done? I can even listen to the overall sheen of the master. So there's these layers of appreciation. Now, that's a bit specific to people who work in audio production, but it allows you to appreciate music on levels that aren't just the gut level. Sure. Not to, but not to say the gut level isn't still perhaps the most valuable of all of those, well, right? That brings up an interesting question then. Uh, say someone, I mean, you know, using that genre as an example, mm-hmm. someone comes in the door, they want to record some some new country yeah. music here. It's happened. How, how, how do you approach that then? Uh, you know, obviously you're doing the technical side of things, mm-hmm. not the, you know, songwriting, performing side of things, but how do you approach that as someone who maybe doesn't listen to that genre of music? What can, what can you guys bring, I guess, to, to enhance and improve that if you may not have the background in that genre so much as, you know, something that you're really comfortable and familiar with? Well, it's a good question. I'll give my answer, and Paul, I don't know if you have an answer or something you want to contribute to, but, but it, you know, I'll try and make it short. I'm not going yeah, sure, to sure, short sure. answers, yeah. but, you know, for me, that is kind of the gig. You know, and, and enough, it, yeah. we do all kinds of work here, but the gig is always not selfishly what do I like about the music. It is like trying to get into the head of the client and what do they enjoy about it. Yeah. And I think anybody who has any longevity in this industry realizes that at some point. Most of us get into this because, A, we created our own music. That's how I got started in this. And you think you have something to offer. You think you have some talent or some insight or something. But there's a bit of ego there. Yeah, and I think at some definitely. point, a few years into running a studio or working professionally, whatever it is, you have to get over yourself and your ego, right? The gig is essentially understanding as much as you possibly can from the client's perspective what excites them mm-hmm. about that song or that music even if maybe in your personal view maybe they're not that sophisticated maybe yeah. the song isn't that sophisticated there's all these different barriers or maybe it is sophisticated but it's in a genre you cannot personally relate to in sure. any way shape sure. or form maybe there's things about that genre you might snicker and sneer at in other contexts but when you're working with that client you're you're totally invested in what they're trying to achieve yeah just just not don't mean to interrupt you but uh, I, while you were saying that that's happened to me before on the podcast. I mean, I usually am interviewing artists who I'm music I'm personally interested in, mm-hmm. but there are definitely times where someone, something about that person interests me enough that I want to interview them, even if I would never have previously even considered listening to their music. And then I become a fan after having the conversation and learning where they're coming from and what appeals to them about this music and, and things like that. So, yeah, I, I know That's what you're the thing. About. I think learning about a person, it's easy to kind of like dismiss something when you don't know about the sure. person and where that music's coming from. But I think the nature of working with clients is that you do get to, I mean, the studio is almost like a therapy seat as well, sure, too. Sure. You get to know people. You get hours and hours to get to know each other, to talk. I'm not saying I'm best friends with everybody here, but a surprising number of our clients and students become our friends. They become, you know, better than acquaintances it's here. The same in the with studio. me and the podcast. People yeah. have interviewed, yeah. yeah and it's, it's actually one of the things I never thought about when I entered this business. It never even crossed my mind. We were so focused on we can offer better audio with new tools and education. And like we had all these like these these quality objectives to give to people. We're like, we can give you value here. Yeah, yeah. And then I didn't realize that the thing that I would most get out of it was just like really enjoying the people that come through your door and what they have to say and their insights and their struggles, what led them to create. I just respect the fact that at the end of the day, whether they're a client or a student, these are people that are not just vegging in front of the tube every night. They're actually trying to create something. Sure. And some of them are barely creating anything, <laughs> and some of them are doing amazing work. Yeah, but, yeah. but everybody needs to get some support in between that. And not to sound too, you know, touchy-feely about it, but that's the part that excites me about it. And so to get back to your question about, you know, how do you approach a genre or something that you just can't relate to or just don't like in any way, I think you do kind of get into it for yeah. the time. that. And if you can't do that, like if you can't get inside their heads a little bit, I don't know that you should be working in this business, you know? That's my view. That's, that's a good Maybe answer. There's some like people that, yeah. that work that way, but I, I just I have, to, I have to get into it for the time that I'm working on. Once it's done, it's done. You don't you have know? to listen to it ever again. Yeah, I never have to, to hear yeah, it again. Yeah. I've heard it a lot of times, so I don't need to listen yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I definitely think Andrew hit the nail on the head there. Like we've, uh, he started this studio about twenty years ago, and it was almost entirely an electronic based studio at, at that point, a long time ago. And as times have progressed, he's done a whole bunch of different work with a whole bunch of different artists, a whole bunch of different genres, and a whole bunch of different industries outside of the music industry, you know, in, in, in film and, and TV and, and a whole bunch of other things. And what I've sort of realized by dipping my hands in all those different areas of the, of, you know, of the, of, of the audio industry is that Precursor has built up a, a little community of of audio around here, and and I'm I'm fortunate to have been able to to become a part of it in, in the past couple of past year or so, and and it it, it is really entirely about the people because like like you said before, once you learn a little bit of a backstory about an artist, you you sort of tend to enjoy their music a, a bit more because you you know a little bit more about what went into creating that bit of art. And at the end of the day, what we're doing here is creating art. And who are we to judge what what is right art and what is the wrong art to be making? You know, if if someone likes country music, why why would we disagree and say, oh no, yeah, that's that's not something we we don't particularly enjoy. So we don't want to make it. It's art. And you know, I personally I'm 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 a firm, firm supporter of of any art. I I, I love visual art. I love hearing art. I love I love making it, and so you know anybody that wants to come in in here and be a part of the, be a part of making some art or something that they they feel they want to put out into this world is something we're more than eager to be be behind and, and help out in whichever way we can. And full confession on my part here in karaoke, I sling sing classic country. Okay, <laughs> that's that's Fair what enough. I do. So we said it's contemporary country. Yeah, you know, not to knock it, it's just not my thing. But I actually love to listen to country from about the Western swing era of the nineteen twenties and thirties all the way up to about the mid seventies is where yeah. I cut off. Yeah. So you know, once again, like it's not like I can't relate to elements of what's in modern sure. country, even sure. though it's different from that. But um, I think being a bit eclectic in your taste too might help as well. I, I'm definitely people say, "What do you like?" and it's kind of like it's a hard question for me to answer. It sounds like a cop up, but it's like I like deep listening. I like music that that I I can focus on, and that I like it when I can't just immediately figure out how something was created. Sure. You know, on a on a level of uh, say music theory or engineering. If I can't just immediately in five minutes recreate that in the studio, that's what excites me. If somebody's done something kind of clever and kind of interesting, you know, and of course, obviously, it has to move you as well. And that doesn't matter what genre for me, right? So it does cross a lot of different genres. You know, and not everybody has to be eclectic because I do find a lot of studios, at least in, in this city do tend to be a fairly focused on a couple genres. Sure. And we're kind of weirdos because we don't really do that. <laughs> it's not really our thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but maybe that is our thing. Our thing is Your that thing it's is not, not having our, a thing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have yeah. a thing. Yeah, I don't style know. Style is having no style. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I guess that's what it is. And that's probably been said many times before. Yeah. So. Um, so a lot of the people who listen to the show, from what I can tell anyway, are, are local musicians. So it seems to be the the... People who are on the show and the audience tends to kind of have a very limited uh, circle. Yeah, that's great, um, though. So if someone's listening to this and they're hearing you guys talk about what you do, who, well, I guess, what would be the reason someone would take would want to come see you? I mean, obviously, you're going to enhance what they're doing. You're going to improve it greatly from just a basement recording or something. But if I'm in a band and I recorded something in the basement, what am I going to see you for? Like, what, what can you do to that recording to to make it sound more professional, to make it something I can use as a calling card or, you know, to, to, to help book shows, to help maybe find a label interested. Yeah, so that, I'm going to come at that from, I know, Paul, you've got something to say on this too. I'm just going to come at that from a little bit of a different angle sure. and I'll let Paul jump in here. Um, you know, 
we could go on and on about the different things. I mean, we can apply compression to things. We can yeah, equalize I just, them. I don't get we can, that, that you know, we can mix to, yeah. them better for you. Yeah. We can do, we can go to all. We can put them to the betterizer. You know, like all that <laughs> stuff, right? Betterizer. Um, yeah. The bottom line is, is I realized a long time ago there are a lot of very competent engineers out there. Sure. There are a lot of people in the city who can who can mix a pretty good song. Some of them are running studios, and some of them are in their basements. But there there are a lot of talented people. I've been humbled by some of the things people have brought in here. Um, I don't know that it's that we're so much better. I think we're very good, and I think we strive always to be better. We our thing always was Winnipeg used to compare itself to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. So Winnipeg artists would and Winnipeg studios would compare themselves to other Winnipeg artists and studios. Good for Winnipeg, kind yeah, of thing? yeah. Or maybe yeah. at best they compare themselves to Toronto or something sure. like that. We always thought, no, you put your stuff up against the best that's out there, and you know what? It's pretty damn demoralizing to put your mix, your master, your song up against the best artists in that genre. But you know, when you do that consistently, every time you finish something, you learn a little bit more about it. And we've been doing that process for 20 years in all kinds of different genres and even different industries, as Paul suggested. Yeah. But I think the reason that people usually seek us out, I've realized, and this is something I didn't even think about till the student told me about it in the early days of the studios. The student is now one of my friends, is that you're coming to join a community of like-minded people. And that sounds, makes us sound like a cult, but we're not. Um, well, maybe a little bit. But, <laughs> but no, the idea is, is that we have a community of people who are very bootstrap-focused. They're very focused on doing things themselves. So that's yeah. the student side. Those ten, people tend to be wanting to learn as much as they can about things. Some of them just want to learn a little more than they already know. And that's totally cool. I get that. Not everybody wants to be some mad scientist engineer. I thought that was the deal when we started out. I was very <laughs> yeah. disabused of that early on. But people are coming to improve. So we help them do that. And so I guess, once again, that type of digital audio literacy is still something that I think is very much needed, and we provide that, and we do it in short, focused training. So you're not having to come and take a vocational course where you're laying 10 grand now. You can spend right. a few hundred bucks and learn something or take some custom training on your time, whatever it is, right? Um, on the client side, though, you're coming to work with people who are going to try and, as best as they are able within your budget, to, to match your stuff up against the best of what's out there. If there are things, some things on your part that you could be doing better, and there almost always are, sure. we're going to help to give you a heads up as to what that is. It's not to our benefit to try and conceal from you what could make your music better or to try and hire our buddies to improve your music, yeah. right? We're there to say, look, these are the things that you could do next time around. It's up to you whether you do them or not, but that you could bring us a better product to start with, and then in turn, we can give you a better product, right? Like, so real honesty and feedback is a huge part of our process, right? Uh, and then once again, we are also continuously improving. So someone who comes to us as a client and then comes back two years later, don't expect us to be delivering the same product. We want to have improved, and that's our quest as well, too. So those are kind of some core principles, but I think the main thing that everybody comes back to me with is they don't expect to join this community, but once they do come here, they join a community of people from very, very different musical yeah. and other backgrounds who all have the things I've just talked about in common. Now, there are some people who make music who don't have those traits. We're probably not the studio for the people that don't believe in that kind of constant progression because that's something that we strive for, and we yeah. found that the people that like us are trying to do that themselves, often laboring in isolation. They're finally like, hey, I'm a weirdo, but there are other weirdos yeah, out yeah, there, yeah. And, they, and they're at 218 Marion. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that touches on almost exactly what sort of drew me to this studio realistically, and that that's that's the fact that you kind of we we kind of understand the reality of DIY recording, and that it's getting much much more prevalent and much much more powerful, and realistically, it's becoming more and more the way to go. There there's no doubt about it. For for most artists, if if they're getting started, when they're getting started, DIY recording is easily the best, the cheapest, and and just the most efficient way to go. And so we kind of understand that. And that's why, you know, like, like you say, we can tell you, you know, hey, we can do this for you, we can compress it, we can do all this stuff for you, and it's going to 
you know, because we're doing all those services for you, this is what it's going to charge you or whatever. But we don't really want to take that route per se. We kind of want to just help you create the best art and create something that you are, at the end of the day, very happy with. And and if that means that we do all the work and, and get it as very good as we can get it to sound, then then that may be one route. But another route may be, and this is what particularly drew me to the studio is, you know, we, we can, you can come sit down on a mastering session and you can learn what 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 what's going on in the master so you can eventually be able to do it yourself if that's something you want to do. Now, obviously not everybody wants to, like Andrew said, not everybody is as eager about sound as we are and like, that's, the, that's just a reality. But a lot of people are extremely eager at, at doing these basic little DIY recording things and, and being able to write songs in, in their bedroom without without having to think about it and and there there does take a, a decent bit of knowledge to get there and we we want we want everybody to have that knowledge you know like it, it it's in a lot a lot of other studio studios they're very eager to kind of hide that knowledge and be like yeah we can record this we can do it for yourself but the we love the DIY recording scene it just means that more people are going to be creating music and more people are going to be creating art and that's something we 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 want to accelerate even more well, I want to pick up one of Paul's points because I think when we started in particular, and I think there are some people who operate this way, although I, don't think it, I do think it's changing culturally just out there. The younger people are viewing things differently. But when we started in the scene here, there very much was this sense of scarcity where studios are like, well, you know, we're primarily getting funded through grants. And so there's a limited amount of money out there. A limited number of bands are going to get supported. And so we don't want to show people what we're doing because if they can learn how to do it, then where's the value for us? Then we'll right? be out of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, sure. and, and that's not just the city. That's other places. So I've talked to people in San Francisco and other places when I've gone to conferences and they've said the same thing. Um, we never believed that. We always thought, you know, really, if people have more information, they in turn can bring a better product. So we have what they call it attended sessions in other studio. People usually have to pay extra to sit in on sessions because sometimes it can be a pain in the butt to the engineer. Sure, I can we, see that, yeah. yeah. We factor that in. We actually encourage band members and people to come in and sit in on sessions or people who work in other things like films. And if they want to, they don't have to. Not everybody desires that. Yeah. But if they want to and they want to learn as part of their process, we encourage them to sit in. Now, they may not be able to understand. We may not have time to explain everything that we're doing. But for people that are already doing some of the stuff themselves, they're going to learn something from it. And more importantly, we get to see their real-time reactions to the changes we make to their music. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's the value for me because when I see somebody reacting in a way where they're uncertain about a change I've made, even if they're not sure how to articulate it and they're not comfortable with it, that's valuable to me because I know I'm going down the wrong road on something. And when I see them getting excited about something, conversely, then I'm knowing going down the right yeah, road. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's almost no way to replicate that when the person's not in the room with you. So we've always believed, not just, I mean, obviously people can pay for it in the classroom setting, but sometimes just sitting in and picking up by osmosis is a way of learning that that is equally important. So yeah, we've never believed in that scarcity thing. Yeah. And we're also a very private sector studio. It's not that there isn't some grant money that comes through here through film, television, uh, video games, and music. There are some that's come through because people are supported. And that's yeah. great. We think that support is awesome when it's being well used. But but the vast majority of our revenue has always been very commercial and private sector. So we're not dependent on any kind of scarcity because we believe there's an infinite amount of work out there. And we're still trying to get all of it, but <laughs> but we do yeah, believe yeah, it's yeah. out there. We believe it exists, yeah. right? Well, I think now more than ever it does. Yeah. So if people are, you know, hearing about you for the first time on the show, maybe they missed the podcast festival, which again, for shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the best way to find out more information about what you're doing? Whether it's uh, as far as classes, whether it's as far as, you know, wanting to be a client, 
how do they find out more information? So I, mean, I think our website is always the best starting point. So it's precursorproductions.com for the website. Um, we have social media pages, which I'll let Paul talk about because he's definitely much more involved in what's going on with our social media sure. strategy and all those sort of things. It's a lot to manage, and thankfully he's helping us now because uh, it's tough for me as a, as a small studio to do that. But definitely the website's a great place to start. It's, it's nicely broken down into the training side and the services side. And we really strongly encourage anybody who has more than a passing interest in the studio to contact us through the site is probably the easiest okay. way or through one of our social media pages just set up a studio visit. Like, you know what I mean? I, if somebody expresses any reasonable interest, I say come down for half an hour, have a cup of tea with us here, see the studio, and more importantly, talk to us about your project. We want to know what you're doing, and we'll help you decide if it's a fit. It's not always a fit, yeah. but we won't, we'll know that best through an in-person discussion. Well, that's kind of how this happened anyway. I came and hung out with you guys it was for exactly a half hour. That. And yeah, 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 the studio visit, yeah. and we we really encourage that. If nothing else, I get to learn about somebody cool in the community. Yeah, At best, sure. maybe they become a client. I mean, you just never know where that's going to go. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like Andrew said, I've been sort of managing most of the social media recently, and so uh, we we do have a Twitter where we sort of where we post regular audio tips every day. There, um, anything from mixing, mastering tips to audio production to general, you know, what mics to select in what environments, and kind of anything in between. And and so our our, our handle on that is is at Precursor Studio, and that's our Twitter page, and um, our Instagram page is a little less. Uh, a little less active at this point, but in, uh, in in the coming months, we definitely plan to ramp that up a little bit more with uh, some more engagement and more activity. And that is, uh, the Instagram handle is at Precursor Productions. And, um, and, and yeah, like I say, the Twitter, I, I'm very quite active right now. So if you if you message me on Twitter right now, I'll be able to get back to you within... Uh, within within an hour or two, realistically, and uh, and and Instagram, realistically, the same thing. So both of those pages would be uh, would would be more than more than adequate to reach out to us, and and we'd love to we'd love to chat with you. Yeah, the bottom line is we're curious people. We're curious about sure. what's going on in the community, and I think that curiosity is what continues to define how we relate to people. And I think the people we serve are curious too, right? So yeah, hopefully yeah. they're a little curious enough to come and learn a bit more about us. Well, you probably wouldn't have been doing this this long if you weren't curious about what people are doing because you, you, <laughs> if you were just so dis- disengaged with the uh, the job, right, dude? Yeah, I know that passion. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we got to work those 12, 14-hour days, especially when you're working in like audio post-production film, television or whatever, and yeah. sometimes on music too. And, you know, sometimes it is exhausting. I'm definitely getting to the age where I don't have the stamina <laughs> I once have. So I got nice young guys like Paul <laughs> yeah, coming yeah, yeah, in yeah. here. Guys are willing to push through a weekend and get things done. <laughs> um, but I can still surprise myself sometimes. But, you, you know, it's if you don't have that passion, that curiosity and that love of the people who create, because I mean, it's like... You have to love people. I know there's uh, there's a there's a lot of quotes, and some of them are from the jazz community and that. But about essentially musicians being your kind of people, right? And I think that's what you discover early. Totally, on, you yeah. know, and that's what makes it worth. I'm sure you've discovered it in doing Absolutely, the podcast, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's just there's something about those kind of people that I like. Yeah. Now, maybe it would be there are other communities of like engineers and other types of people where they have their own defining traits. But for me, I've always been drawn towards people who are creative in different ways. Me as well, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, it's funny if there's one thing I've realized about working working in a studio the past year is that. You know, as much as it seems to be a technical, or from the outside, it seems to be a technical-based job. We're we're a service industry. We we deal with people. That's pretty much, you know, at the, we do do recordings, but most mostly what we do is we deal with people, and that's one of the things I've come to love about this job is you you meet so many interesting people, and and like most of them are most of them are artists, realistically, and and that could be why most of them are extremely interesting people <laughs> that we deal with, but. You know, you, you, dealing with with people on a regular basis, it it's just it's it's a very humbling experience, you know, because a lot of these people are coming in with with something that's so true and so dear to who they are as a person. It's something that they've created from their heart a lot of the time, and it's it, it can be it can be for them very unnerving to to share that with us, and 
and and and kind of what I realize is how to you know em- embracing embracing what they're sharing with us is is a very a very important part of the job because like I say what they're what they're sharing with us is their blood sweat and tears they've created this this song for you know some of them spend up up like a number of any, any years working on these albums before they they show it to anyone and so that that that's what I've learned is the biggest part of the job which is really quite a humbling experience is getting to share that moment with with, with these artists as they they show us this thing they've been working on for the past year, and it's like I say, very humbling, a very amazing experience just to get to share that with them. Well, and, and making them comfortable. A lot, a lot of my job has been just getting people comfortable enough. I'm sure you face it with the podcast too. Like, not everybody's comfortable talking, no, right? That's true. That's and true. Not everybody's comfortable showing what they've worked on, and that some people are just like right in your face, and they're then it's like whoa, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but a lot of people, it's it, who have something really good to say. Um, you have to draw them out. Absolutely. And so that is really the art of it. And, and once again, if you're not interested in that, you're probably not in the right business yeah. or, or wouldn't be running our kind of studio anyways. But the, developing the skills to draw those people out. And even sometimes when people are a bit challenging to deal with, and you're initially like, whoa, I'm not sure if I even like this person. <laughs> and then learning how to get past that and, and finding out the reasons why they may be presenting yeah. that way and that too. Those are skills. And those are really interesting skills that that we think are valuable. So that's And that's you know, obviously there are a lot of hard technical skills in the music and audio creation side that we, you know, we didn't get into, and it's fine because yeah. there are well, lots of places where people talk about that. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it can bore people. If you're not an engineer already, yeah. I mean, it's boring to death, and it's well addressed in other other arenas. It is, you know? yeah, yeah. Even I get tired of hearing yeah. about that stuff. So. Well, and a lot of it's over my head, too, as an interviewer. You know, like, it's like, you, could, you guys can start talking about something and it'll just be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> zone out, out, right? So, but, okay, so the website's the best place to, to get started, to find out more information, to get in touch, social media. If you want to hear more episodes of this show, you can go to witchpolice.com. All 430 whatever episodes are there for free download and streaming. You can also tune in on Sundays at midnight on 101.5 UMFM. And those are older episodes that get kind of a second boost a few months after they come out in podcast form. So, you know, it's what, October, uh, November now? Maybe by May or June, you'll be driving in your car at midnight, turn on the radio, there's this conversation. So <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of cool because it's, yeah. you know, it's always there to download or to stream online. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, most of the time, my radio is set at 101.5 yeah. when I'm just driving around, so it's <laughs> maybe it will pop on. It's happened to me. I've been driving, yeah. and, I've been driving and I switch the station, and all of a sudden I hear myself talking because yeah. I forget which, you know, which yeah, one. It, yeah. and it's something from three months, four months ago. That's and, yeah, hilarious. Which is cool. always a little disconcerting, but cool at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, 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 one of the best things I think about podcasting versus being on live radio is that kind of permanent availability of the content. So someone could hear this two years from now, and maybe you're exactly what they're looking for in a studio and they'll get in touch, right? So Yeah, no, and as a, as a consumer of it too, it's exciting too. You find an episode that you like, then you dig back to two, totally. three, five, ten years of totally, it. Totally, yeah. And you've got this this wealth of stuff to check out. Yeah. It's so cool. Discovering yeah, a new podcast that has about 400 episodes is one of the greatest days of that month. Like, yeah, it's good. It, it gets yeah. a bit daunting at first, but yeah. it's like you start you start consuming it as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you can cherry pick the ones that look more interesting to you, you can, now, yeah. and then you can you know, and then once you've kind of gone through those, you can go back and comprehensively listen to the other totally, stuff. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to consume media. It is, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it's becoming more of a thing, as we were saying at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and like I said, I had no idea the the Winnipeg community was uh, as involved as it is, and it's yeah. really it's really neat to see where it's going. I, I hope it continues to grow, and I think it will. I think it will too. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, yeah. So thanks for having me here, and uh, thanks again for doing the. the Pod, 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 pod fest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're happy to do that and happy to take on the recording for this one. I mean, it would seem wrong if you came to the studio and we didn't record it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this because it'll be, uh, you know, with my little recorder, some of them sound great, some of them sound awful. It's just a lot of it has to do with where I am and, Completely, you know, background yeah. noise. And, you know, I do, I've done some in the food court. 
<laughs> just because because that's where we're what's available. Well, and then there is the availability of food as well too. That's right? true an too. Component and and then sometimes it sounds great, but then other times you know there's some kids screaming in the background, and <laughs> it, it just kind of takes you out of it. So here you just have us screaming. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. A little different. But I mean, that's some, I, I want you guys screaming. You know, so kind of the point, right? <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm actually curious to hear how it turns out too, because this obviously isn't our conventional recording sure, setup. But, sure. Yeah. But that's the fun part about it is, is that you just kind of set it up and you go and you see what you get. Yeah. Right on. All right. Thanks Cheers. again, guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us, Sam. We we had a blast.